welcome to the Be Military Fit podcast, a special series designed to help develop physical fitness and mental resilience in everyone. Brought to you by Be Military Fit, the world's best outdoor workout. 29 days, 14 hours, 34 minutes. It's the length of time it takes to row the Atlantic with four blokes in a boat. Dubbed the toughest race on earth, with more people climbing Everest and crossing the Atlantic by rowing boat. In this podcast, we welcome Dickie Taylor, one of the four oarsmen who crossed the Atlantic in 29 days. We uncover what it takes to break the world record and become the fastest men to row the Atlantic. In this episode, we talk about physical and mental preparation for an event as challenging as this. We discuss how to deal with complete isolation and the close confinement of a rowing boat with four other guys on board. Rowing the Atlantic may seem like a very specific event which has no crossover to anything else in life, but in actual fact, the lessons learned by Dickie and experiences gained are incredibly valuable for everyone and anyone looking to win in life. Dickie, welcome to the show. Great to have you on the pod. How are you doing? Very well, thanks. Thanks for having me. That's an absolute pleasure. I've been trying to get you on this pod for a couple of weeks now, um, and it's uh, it's great to have you on board and great to finally get to chat to you about what you did in 29 days, 14 hours and 34 minutes. And to start the pod off, I thought it'd be a good way of setting the scene so you can tell the listeners exactly what you did in about five minutes. Well, yeah, so... <clears throat> uh, Two, three years ago now, uh, me and three of their good friends uh, set a goal of, of rowing across the Atlantic uh, in, like you say, 29 days. Uh, and uh, yeah, I mean, it was a tremendous achievement. Uh, we, we really set out to, with three main objectives, to raise as much money for charity, um, to still be friends at the end of it, and, and be competitive in the race. So uh, there are three main goals. Um, but, uh, yeah, it was, it was a lot of people talk about the race itself, uh, but we had probably in the region about two, two years of preparation before the race that was absolutely key to, to the success of the race and how we did. Uh, there were so many different facets to the race. Uh, it's, it's a race unlike many others where, you know, you, you haven't just got to be physically fit and fit, fit for the row. You've got to, you know, have the training, sea survival training, navigation training. You've got to know your boat. You've got to have a solid nutrition plan. Uh, we obviously had to raise about 150 grand to get to the start line, and, and we, we ended up raising in the region of about uh, £550,000 for, for, for two charities. So uh, a lot of work in, in fundraising as, as, well, obviously, as well as, as just focusing on the row. But uh, a okay. tremendous achievement and, and something to, you know, I'm very proud looking back on. Very good. You've set the scene nicely there to kind of go into various areas, which is really what this pod is designed for. It's to talk about physical fitness, but also mental resilience. And I think there's probably a lot of things within a race like this. Um, and just to confirm for the listeners, this this is an official race, right, Dickie? It's, you know, do you want to explain exactly what the race is and what it's called? Yeah, so it's called the Talisco Whiskey Atlantic Challenge. I, th- I believe it's been going for about 10, 15 years now. It used to be biannually so every every couple of years now it's every every year uh, there's in the region of, of about 28 to 30 boats each year that take part in the race uh, some singles some doubles some triples uh, we were obviously a four um, and uh, there's there's various different classes of, of boat um, some more modern boats some some traditional and, and obviously different people take part in the race some with a focus to you know racing uh, others with a focus of of just having an experience uh, others just to raise money for charity so it, it brings a, a lot of different interesting people together i think there was about 60 people in total that were in our race and over the course of the the two weeks leading up to the start of the race you get to know these people pretty well you're going through the same you know the same experience as them they're obviously pretty kind of outgoing people so uh, you get you know a whole host of different characters so uh, we got to know them pretty well and it, it was it was it was obviously a, a great little race and am I right in thinking that it's, I mean, they, they dub it the, the toughest race on earth, I believe. Am I right in thinking more people have climbed Everest than crossed the Atlantic in a rowing boat? Yeah, exactly right. I think there's less than, 
when I did it, it was a less of a, less than a thousand people had, had actually rode across the Atlantic. Other people obviously rode the Atlantic outside of this race, um, but but a, a lot of the people that have rode the Atlantic, I think the majority have, have done it within this race. So there's there's okay. a, a small little club. And so you, you guys are the current world record holders for a four-man boat to go across the Atlantic. We're going to get into more detail about the race, how you trained for it, how you how you mentally and physically prepared for it, and obviously we'll get it into hopefully some of the interesting stories along the way. But um, tell us a little bit more about Dickie Taylor before we kind of understand Dickie Taylor, the athlete. <laughs> yeah, well, I guess uh, to sum it up, I was um, a farmer's son, so grew up in the northeast of England. Um, you know, uh, for me, you know, it yeah, grew up loving sport. Team sports were, were really my passion. Uh, played a lot of cricket, rugby, uh, didn't play many video games. I was much more of an outdoorsy kind of person, building dens when I was younger. Um, eventually made made it to, uh, to to high school across in Sedba, which was a kind of a focused focused rugby school. So I got into that. Um, and then as I got, got older, went to University of Leeds in, uh, and, and played rugby there. Uh, eventually made it down to, to London. And then more recently, actually, my job, which is uh, involved in technology and oil and gas, took me over to Houston in Texas. So I've been living out there. It was only supposed to be a couple of years, but I've been living out there for, for six years now. So, um, yeah, it's, it's amazing where you end up. But I've, I've been stranded in London for the last uh, 10 weeks or so with uh, coronavirus. So uh, I'm enjoying London at the moment. <laughs> right, yeah. So the lockdown, I think, is, is a challenging time for a lot of people. Um, we won't go into too much detail, but are you coping well at the moment? You're probably quite used to being stuck in a small space. Um, so how's lockdown in London? No, it's, it's been interesting. Great, great to come back to London, but obviously under difficult circumstances. I'm, I'm actually cohabiting in a house with one of my road buddies. So uh, we, have, we know each other very well. Um, I'm getting to know his girlfriend a, a little bit better as well. <laughs> Um, but, but no, we, we, uh, we obviously know and understand each other very, very well. So it's been, it's, it's been a bit of a pleasure for me. Um, uh, I, I've been working us hours, so it's been a little bit different. I've, I've got a slightly different routine, uh, to the other people in the house, but, uh, but no, it's, 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 it, I, I feel the, certainly myself and, and whether others can relate to this, that the, the human body uh, adapts very quickly. And for the first two weeks, I found myself, you know, wanting to go outside and doing stuff that I couldn't do. Whereas, you know, I, I feel after that two weeks, you kind of just fall into it and become accustomed to it. So uh, I haven't really got too frustrated. I've been able to get my exercise. Um, and, uh, and and really, you just got to think of the positives, really, and, and get yourself into a solid, solid routine um, to, to be able to be uh, as productive as possible. Okay, so... I think great to get a bit of an introduction and the sort of background behind Dickie Taylor and to understand that without wanting to um, sound uh, negative here in any way, you're just, a, you're just an average guy that happened to get together with a few of the blokes, row the Atlantic and absolutely smash it and uh, achieve a world record, um, which makes me think that you're probably not an average guy and there's something in there that... Um, you know, makes you fairly unique to be able to achieve something like that. Do, do you kind of understand that now, or or did, does that still not kind of um, hit home that you've got something pretty special here and you've done something pretty special? Yeah, no, I mean, you're right. I mean, just just you know, four average guys. Absolutely, we you know we set out on this uh, you know adventure. Let's say two years out, not knowing anything about ocean rowing. Um, and, you know, I'm a great believer of, you know, after the road now of, you know, if, if anyone's possible of doing anything, if you put your mind to it, you can do absolutely anything. And we were very lucky to find four people that were aligned or we aligned ourselves at the start to say, right, we, we, we want to row this, the Atlantic. We, we, we were passionate about two charities. Um, uh, we were lucky to know each other fairly well, but there was certainly some, uh, you know, difficult conversations and always, um, is tension along the way but um but yeah I mean, like i say average average bunch of guys just wanting to go out there and, and prove ourselves we, we were the kind of wrong side of 30 at the time um we were we were all struggling with recovering from injuries so we had you know bad backs two people had just had knee operations i'd recovered just from a from a slip disc so we were we were in no kind of we were definitely on the back foot i'd say 
Um, and like I say, once we set our mind to it, we, we learned so much about exercise, nutrition, what we needed to do to be successful on the boat. Uh, and we just, we just went for it. We just aligned ourselves and, and went for it. And uh, it all turned out pretty good. That's really interesting. I hope that during this show we can kind of understand how four average guys um, come to plan, prepare and uh, perform at such an event, which um, is not just a simple challenge. I mean, this is something which is, you know, as, as I said earlier on, dubbed one of the toughest races in the world, but people die on this race. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I th- well, I, th- I think there's certainly a few people died on, on the Atlantic or doing an Atlantic crossing on a rowing boat. Uh, I'm not too sure whether that's been in, in the race itself. There's obviously a lot of, if you do the race, the Tasker whiskey, uh, whiskey Atlantic Challenge, there's a lot of safety precautions that they put in place. You need, you know, generally a fail safe uh, of everything that you have on the boat um, to make it, you know, safe for your crossing. You're, you're monitored by the race. Uh, there's There's kind of support in place i mean you're not followed but you certainly they have they're tracking you and know exactly where you are um so it, the, the race itself does have a little bit of a safety blanket behind it but there's still risk of you know falling off the boat i think the few people that have died have have, have fallen off the boat and and haven't really been able to get back on the boat it sounds quite simple but the currents out there are pretty pretty serious so uh, you really need to be strapped to your boat at all times and that was something that was drilled into us at all times but there was still times when you you know you completely you completely knackered and you forgot forget to do that so it you know really counts for people uh, on your boat or on your team to, to to make sure when you are half asleep that they're knocking you into shape and ha- you know have that third eye open to make sure that uh, everyone's safe on board yeah so you talked about um the the reasons why you you wanted to do it and raising money for charities and they were quite personal to your group i believe um but was that was that the sole reason or was there kind of an inner purpose for yourself as an individual was this a selfish act or was this actually just you know this is money for the charities and this is why we're doing it i think it's a great question because you know if i'm being really honest uh, it was pete that approached me about the row um I've known Pete since I was seven, went to school with him. Uh, he's got a thirst for adventure as well. And, you know, he, he approached me to say, you know, myself and Stu, who was uh, the third member of our team, um, we, we've just done John O'Groats to Land's End. We really fancy doing something, you know, more serious. Uh, do, do you fancy running across the Atlantic? And, you know, I was like, God, has he gone mad? But, you know, I was, I was definitely up for the challenge myself. Um, and it was then up for us to find a, a fourth member of the team. Um, and, and, and that's when, you know, kind of quickly clicked in my head. I was like, mm, well, you know, the fourth, fourth member, George, my other best mate, um, he probably five years before this had, had sadly lost his, his mum. Yeah. She had, she was going through difficult times. She suffered with mental health issues and, and she passed away. Um, all, all very sad and at the night on the night of a funeral he, he approached me uh, you know we took a step back from from the day it had gone very well and he said you know he really wanted to do something for her to commemorate her life and what she'd done she was a she was a um counselor for mind uh, she did a lot of uh, fundraising and, and she'd suffered suffered from mental illness for a lot of her life so george i, I knew if we could align you know, the purpose of, of the row to, to Anne, that we would be able to get George on board, which we did. Um, so we had th- that one charity. Um, so kind of back to your, back to your question, your original question, I think at the start, um, you know, for, for myself and for Stu, maybe it was, it was more the challenge for, for Pete and for George, uh, for George, certainly it was, it was more for his mum and, and to do something for her. Um, but very quickly, as a group, we all became very closely aligned to these two charities. The other charity I, I kind of failed to say is uh, Spinal Research. Um, Pete was very passionate about this. He played a lot of rugby and he was playing with a guy called Ben Kendi out in Hong Kong, who sadly had a, an accident and, uh, you know, he, he's ended up in a wheelchair um, and uh, he's doing, you know, bounced back and has done tremendously well. But Spinal Research really does a lot of uh, work with uh, funding uh, you know, research on paralysis, trying to help people who have had spinal cord injuries, um, you know, re- recover. Um, so, so like I say, we were, we were both very closely aligned and became more and more aligned with these two charities over our campaign. 
you got to know the charities very well. They were very supportive and, uh, you know, so yeah, I mean, we, we, we all had our, I, I think it's fair to say we all had our separate motives, but, um, the, the charity aspect of this was, you know, the purpose of the charities was, was probably the, you know, the pr- prevailing sentiment of, of doing the row. That's great. And that, so that personal challenge started to grow into a greater purpose, I guess. And that greater purpose, you were all quite aligned on by the sounds of it. So in this massive sort of two years of preparation, which is what it took you, was that the thing that kept driving you forwards? Because correct me if I'm wrong, but I think you guys raised more money than anybody has in this race for charities or certainly one of the highest fundraising efforts ever seen for an Atlantic crossing. I mean, it was pretty remarkable. And um, I know some of the efforts and things that you did prior to looking at the research of all the things you've done, it sounds like you almost took this like a, a business project and, you know, had every little piece covered from physical preparation to your nutrition and diet, but also to the fundraising and the, you know, turning up to the start line in one piece. Do you want to give us a bit of an outline of all of the different things that you had to prepare for and how you guys approached it? Yeah, it, 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 it it's definitely had a, so many different facets. And it's funny when we first set out to, to do the, the row and, you know, let's do the, let's row the Atlantic. We all started kind of training, you know, trying to row as fast as we could. And we weren't, certainly we weren't aligned for the first kind of couple of months leading up until Christmas. Uh, we, we kind of had to take a step back eventually and say, look guys, you know, there's so many different things that we need to focus on getting a boat, raising enough money to get to the start line, a lot of administration. Uh, and you know, it made it difficult. You know, Pete was in Newcastle. I was in Texas, George and Stu in London. So what we, what we set out to do was uh, every week we had an hour call on Sunday. Sometimes it ended up being two hours, but we used that call to align ourselves and, and just check our progress week by week and discuss what we needed to focus on the week after. Um, and it, it really, from starting out focusing on the kind of physical, physical aspect and the fitness aspect of it, very quickly, we, we needed to pivot towards, you know, raising money, sorting out fundraising, uh, buying a boat, getting to know our boat, putting ourselves in the position where we would understand how the boat worked um, it wasn't just the physical side of things. Um, but towards the end, we, we did have to focus once we had raised our money, once we had got to the start line, we then did focus you know, last three or four months on, on our, uh, you know, ramping up our physical fitness as well as our nutrition plan. So, uh, we kind of brought it all together at the end. So you were all split up essentially before the race and you, but you're, you're in Texas, right? Um, you've got one guy in Newcastle, north of England. You've got a couple of guys in London. This is kind of like a team event where you need to know each other and be good mates, I guess, when you're stuck in a boat together. How on earth did you, how on earth did you prepare for that when you got to the start line and there's three other guys there that you've probably not spent much time with? Yeah, well, we, we, Despite being in Texas, I, I did make my efforts. I, pr- I think I came over five or six times uh, back from from the states. What we, I think, the main thing we did was we said to ourselves, right, we really need to try and replicate the environment as much as possible that we'll be in on the Atlantic, which is a lot harder than you think because you know you can you can row for two hours on, two hours off, but um, you, you know you, you can't really replicate the, the waves, the seasickness, uh, and all that stuff that comes with it. But what we said to ourselves, let's let's really test ourselves and put ourselves through at least uh, three 24-hour rows. We did we in the end we actually did two 24-hour rows and then we did a 48-hour row. The guys came over to Nashville and we did a we were at a conference. Uh, Stu was working for Delta at the time and we we did a 48-hour row at the conference, and that really allowed us to get to know each other, put ourselves in obviously a difficult situation which is essentially rowing two hours on two hours off for, for, for 12 or 48 hours or sorry, 24 or 48 hours. And that really brought us together. And, you know, we were essentially putting ourselves through the ringer together. And I remember the first row we did, it was up in a CrossFit gym in, this was our first 24 uh, hour row up in a CrossFit gym in, in Anik. And it was minus degrees. Uh, we didn't have much of a nutrition plan, uh, I hadn't really trained with Stu and I knew George and Pete well. And it was the first time 
there was a kind of a special feeling actually because when when the push came to the shove and you know we got past our 12 hours um you know we we just kind of came together and i could tell we had you know four willing people that were willing to kind of go the extra mile um and we we came together on that day really and after the 24-hour row we went out and did a a big walk in the Cheviot Hills and it was a good kind of bonding experience um, where we kind of got to know each other um, and it just kind of went on from there. So uh, we, we certainly, although we were distanced from each other, we, we made our best efforts to, when we did come together, um, put ourselves through the ringer, get to know each other more and, and really physically test ourselves. So events like this are often more about the preparation, more about the training and the, the organization than the actual event itself the performance because i think all of these marginal uh, gains which it sounds like you you worked on or i believe you worked on seem to have kind of all culminated into this performance on the on the day or or the actual month so can you go into some of the details of why you took it so seriously and what you you know what you think stood you apart from others that competed in the race yeah, well, like you, like I said before, we were, were four people with probably less experience than than our other competitors in the race. We, one of our fiercest competitors in the race, Team Antigua, they were four guys that worked on the water and had worked on the water for most of their life. So we knew we had to think outside the box and have a strategy where we would, like you say, we, we looked at different marginal gains. So to give you some example of that, um, we knew from other people that the you know that the body recovered in in a lower temperature when you get into the middle of the Atlantic it's very hot and sweaty so we we looked at implementing a, a reflective um, mirrored boat uh, or mirrored cover on our boat to, to reduce the temperature in the cabin um, we we looked at our nutrition strategy I think that was something that was very crucial as well uh, a lot of people were you know just wolfing carbs down and we kind of learned this on our 24 and 48 hour row that you can't when you're rowing for two hours. You can't really eat during those two hours. So we we pivoted from a kind of a high carb diet to more of a ketogenic or um, high fat, uh, high protein, low carb diet. This this meant that we we're able to, um, you know, we, we didn't have to eat as much. Um, and not many people know, but there's about twice as almost twice as much energy in a gram of fat than there is in a gram of carbohydrate. So. We, we took less food on the boat. We had to eat less because our heart rate was around about, you know, 100 to 130. We weren't going full out all the time. Um, we were able to sustain, you know, it, you know, good energy throughout our row. So little things like that, um, nutrition strategy, things like that really, really kind of helped us. Um, and uh, we, we kind of squeezed everything out as well, as well as obviously being physically fit um as as fit as we possibly could but we, we just we kind of thought outside the box and, and that really i think that really paid dividends during the race all that preparation really paid off um so yeah th- there, there were some examples of the marginal did game you, did you feel like um you know within the, the weeks running up to the race did you feel like you were well prepared or did you think we've not done enough here we're nowhere near ready i don't want to go to the start line or were you kind of revving to go and and confident <laughs> Um, we, I'll be honest, we, we'd done so much preparation. We thought we were so prepared before we got to Lagomera and you spend two weeks in Lagomera and we, <clears throat> we had, we had visions of maybe taking a day off and relaxing and going to play golf. Uh, you know, but <laughs> the fact of the matter is you get there and you realize there's just so many different things to get right on your boat. We had to obviously go through safety checks and there was little things on the boat that we wanted to tweak. Um, and those two weeks just absolutely flew by. Um, it was actually, our, our, our race got delayed by two days, just a, just a bad weather. Uh, and it was a bit of a saving grace because we still had a few things left to do. Um, and then everyone was in the same boat, really. Um, everyone, you know, thought they were prepared. I mean, there were some boats that were, you know, ahead of the game, but we, we definitely, we felt we were prepared, but when it actually got to it, we, we were, we could have been more prepared, um, but uh, we still we we done so much preparation. So um, we 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 still fared well in the race. But uh, yeah, that that time leading up to the start line was it was certainly a nervous one. I tell you that. I guess there's not many people out there 
who can advise you and guide you on preparation really for something like this and not many people that potentially are willing to share their their knowledge either because it's such a small small community as you say that have crossed the Atlantic and um, does that mean that you're really left to your own devices when it comes to preparation? Yeah you're, you're exactly right this this you know you know how do you do this well not many people know and people that have done it do it in different ways so what we did was we we tried to interview and get in touch with as many people that had done it as possible and like like i say some people had different ways of doing things but we we kind of discussed it as a group and you know we eventually made our mind up uh, a, a lot of a lot of things ended up working pretty well um but but yeah, it, it's 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 one of those things that not many people have done. So it was you really had to take your own initiative and um, and, and make a call really. But uh, we we were lucky that we'd done quite a lot of preparation, a lot of speaking to people that had already done it. Um, there was there was a few really crucial things that you know if if one thing fails on the boat on the boat, you, you're absolutely snookered. So um, yeah, we we were lucky on a, on a lot of different in a lot of different cases. One one was the the actual uh, the, the the ball bearings on your seat uh, that that was something that, that you know the salt really broke those down we we just before the race heard that it would be good to take spares of these roller blades and and you know all the all the different bits that that you need to connect those up uh, and i think if we hadn't have have taken spares and and oiled the ones that we had and taken great care we we, we almost would have been out of action. So there were so many little things like that that we, we kind of gathered from, from past rowers and, and the two weeks leading up to the race that okay. really were, were crucial to the success of our race. So, yeah. Um, and yeah. just talk about the, the mental preparation as well. I think it's clear that you, you certainly spent the, the, the three to four months prior to really focusing on your physical preparation. Once you knew you could get to the start line and you could afford to get there and you'd raise the money, um, which is obviously a big feat in itself, you've done the training. But what does it take to actually turn up on the start line and say, right, I'm ready to jump on this boat and cross the Atlantic with not really knowing how it's going to go? I mean, what's it, what's it doing to your head and how are you getting around those messages or those you know bad thoughts in your head at the time that says i don't want to do this yeah it's it was certainly a pretty the night sleep before the the race was yeah it was, it was pretty nerve-wracking because we'd replicated it as much as possible but you're still going out into the unknown you never you never really know what it's going to be like and 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 not many people do uh me and pete were really we knew that you know when we'd been out on our training rows that we were going to be really badly seasick so you, you never know whether you're going to get over that seasickness or not um but it, it it was i think what helped me through this was the kind of team uh, i knew that we'd become very close as a team um we knew each other very well um we knew our strengths we knew our weaknesses and you know there was there was kind of some comfort in knowing that you were going out there with three very close people that had your back so that, I mean, I think if I'd been doing a solo row on my own, that's a completely different ball game. And the amount of respect I have for those people that do it on their own is, I mean, it's just, it's just a, almost a different race in itself. But, but yeah, going out with, with your teammates who, who you know, you've, you know, are going to have your back was, was, was of some comfort. Uh, but still, like you say, it was, uh, it, it was the unknown. You didn't know how you were really going to fare, but I think we're, we're certainly massively up for it and we we're going to give us, give it our best shot no matter what. So there's some some important messages there, actually. Um, and for the benefit of the listeners, whether you're thinking of doing a 5K for the first time or you're thinking of doing the, the Marathon de Saab for the fifth time, there's always going to be those questions before something big like this. As, are you prepared? Are you ready for this? Um, have you got it you know, mentally and physically to complete this challenge? And whether you are doing something for the first time or for the 50th time, uh, I mean, Dickie, could you give any advice to people, especially those first timers that are questioning, can I do this? Is this the thing for me? Because um, I, I think that's something that a lot of people struggle with. Exercise is one thing, going out and training and keeping healthy, but actually having the mental strength to say, yes, I can do this and I can take the step into the unknown and be able to complete something that I've never done before. 
Any advice for people that are kind of in that situation? Yeah, I mean, for, for me, I, I'd say the short answer is get it booked in and, 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 and commit to it. As soon as you've committed to that, you, you can then, in reasonable time, start to plan what you need to do in order to, 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 to reach that goal. Um, and like I said before, if, you know, I, I believe having done the row, if, if you really want to, if you really want to do that, um, that whatever that may be, whether it be the marathon de sable or five um, k, you know, commit to it and then put a routine in place that you you know you know you can handle. Um, and and just it's little and often it's chipping away at what you need to be good at in order to be successful at what you've you'll set you set your goal on. Um, so yeah, my advice would just be to, to, to set that goal, commit to it, uh, and put a routine in place, um, and, and, and work your ass off to get there. And I think one of the things you talked about there is you felt pretty confident on the start line or pretty good. You weren't questioning, you know, not doing it because you had three other guys there that were with you all the way. So being part of a team is obviously something which helps people, um, prepare and helps people feel more, um, confident in, the event that they're about to do so i think some advice for people would be if you are considering doing something pretty major something that is really out of your comfort zone do it with other people or do it with people that you feel confident with that you know you can work together as a team um that must have been a pretty reassuring part for you then dickie having three other guys that you're going to be stuck on a boat with for 30 days yeah no it was absolutely i mean it, it it's it's a difficult one because it's it's gonna it can work in your favor and also having four guys on a boat uh in such a small space can also work to your detriment so we knew that we had to we always said harness each other's strengths and forgive our weaknesses because we all know knew that you know at some point during the crossing people are gonna annoy the hell out of you and with the lack of sleep and all, all you know seasickness that's going on you you become I like to say the worst version of yourself. If you imagine you haven't had enough sleep and you get a bit narky at home and you say to someone, are you, are you tired? And like, no, I'm not tired. And, you know, it, it's, it's that times, you know, times a hundred, you become so short tempered. Um, yeah. So, so you really need to, yeah, like I say, just be forgiving of each other. Um, so, 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 so as long as you're, you know, as long as you're getting over the, the, the tension and, and managing that tension, uh, you know, having a team that's, you know, uh, going to get you through it, certainly for me, was 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 a big comfort. It's, it's great that you brought this up, actually, because it's one of the reasons I wanted to get you on the pod. It, I think that being stuck on a boat with three other people is um, there's got some really important crossovers to what we do deal with in everyday life as families or groups of people living in the same house. And even more so obviously right now during lockdown in the UK, which we're in, which we're both in at the moment, um, you down in London, me up in the north of England. And uh, I suppose you dealing with that, you mentioned it's like it's like normal life, but times 100. Um, you say that you've got to be more patient and you've got to be more forgiving, but how do you, how do you recognise those times when things are going wrong? Is it, do you recognise it in yourself or do you recognise it in those other people and you tell those other people, listen, mate, you need to sort yourself out and go off and have a word with yourself? Yeah, it's certainly something that I've taken from the row. Um, like I said at the start, I'm, I'm, I thrive in a team environment. I like working as a team at work and, and on, on a sports field as well. I think the thing that I've taken away from this is, um, you, you know, there's, there's kind of niggly things, small things that you kind of have to let slide and you have to bite your lip and just, get over it and there's there's you know other slightly larger things that you really have to tackle now you can tackle that in different ways you can kind of tackle it head on you can tack it, tackle it subtly but i think if it is a big thing that's frustrating you you really do need to to air that and get that in the open um but but yeah i, I think um another thing i've learned from the row is yeah it's not just your own contribution of the team to the team. So you can't just sit out there and say, right, I'm going to row as fast as I can for two hours and, and have no respect to your other three team members. You, you've really got to have a third eye open watching them and making sure that they are in an environment to thrive as well. So you're not just being, you know, you're not just focusing on yourself. You've really got to look after your teammates and have their back, you know, to give you an example, if someone's, 
you know, knackered and not looking after himself, you've really got to step up and say, you know, you, you know, whoever, whether George, Pete or Stu, look, look mate, you, you, you need to start taking care of yourself and, you know, or it's ultimately going to end in you, your foot or whatever that may be being too, um, too bad to, to actually row and it's going to affect the overall performance of the team. So I think that was something really important that we all learned um, was to have each other's backs and to care for, for four, you know, six foot rugby players. Um, it was it was a bit of a weird one. It's you've got to be very sensitive and you've got to care for each other, which sounds a bit strange, but it, it really played to our favour. It's listening to that. There's three or four key messages there, which are so similar to family life. Um, you know, to the listeners out there who who are you know family who have families I think what you've just described is exactly what goes on in most families on a daily basis and picking those moments where you can understand the importance of supporting people um, letting people know when they've kind of overstepped the mark or that something's going to annoy you I think hopefully what you've just described is actually a really valuable few moments for people to think yeah those are the ways that these issues and challenges we have as a family should be dealt with so I hope that's really useful. Dickie, that was um, that's a really good kind of piece to move on to the detail of the actual race. Um, and I want you to kind of go into some of the more challenging aspects of the race and, you know, give us a bit of a, an overview of what it's really like to be stuck on a boat rowing two hours on, two hours off for 29 days and how you how you get through that. <laughs> if you can do that in the next sort of 25 minutes. Yeah, it's, it's, it's hard to put into words. It really is. I think the word I'd use to describe it, um, one word I'd use to describe it is, is just relentless. As soon as you start the race and get out into the, the open sea, you know, you've got the waves crashing on your boat constantly for the next 29 days. And we were fortunate to have some fairly turbulent weather, which helped us along our way. Um, but it but it meant that the boat was constantly unstable, uh, whether you were on deck uh, rowing and getting knocked off over the side of the boat um, with a wave or whether you were trying to get some sleep and you were literally getting chucked around the cabin. It was just constant, constant, relentless, just, you know, <laughs> there was no there was no down downtime. So um, it was, you know, there was lots of different facets to it, but it was it was being able to cope with that just relentless, um, just uncomfort um, on the boat. Um, and something that really helped us was was getting into a, a routine. Uh, that was the most important thing, I think, that kept us sane. And it meant that we, you know, segmented, you know, work, which was getting on the oars for two hours and nailing it and rowing it as fast as you possible, as fast as you possibly could for two hours. And then mixed with, looking after yourself for a bit and, and eating and stretching. And then you got your reward, which was, which was your sleep. And we, we only slept for people think two hours of rowing, two hours of sleep. Well, you obviously you've got to feed yourself. You've got to cook, you've got to clean, you've got to look after yourself. You've got to stretch and do all those things to, to make sure you're maintaining yourself. So you only really got at the most, I mean, I was pretty good at sleeping, <laughs> But I, I'd say I'd probably got the very most an hour and 15, maybe an hour and a half most shifts. Um, so, you know, sleep deprivation becomes a big part of it as well. And, and being able to manage that um, for the first kind of four or five days, you're getting into a different cycle. Uh, you're obviously normally sleeping for eight hours and, and awake for, for the remainder. But for, for this, it was really focusing on that four hour cycle of, of, of rowing as hard as you can for two hours, maintaining yourself, doing some chores on the boat, and then getting your rest. And, and uh, that was really what kept us kept us going was that constant routine. Um, and and we, we were able to tweak that routine over the course of time. But as long as you got that set routine to, to work towards that everyone knew they had to do, that, that kept it simple. Uh, so you had to kind of, you know, think think less about you know what you were going to do it was it was just that routine so relentless discomfort i i picked that up as a phrase which actually is really quite useful because i'd like to ask how on earth under constant relentless discomfort did you want to sit back on a 
seat and start rowing again for another two hours. I mean, how, I, I'm not going to try and add up how many sessions of that you actually did in the first 29 days, but obviously quite a few. How on earth did you get yourself up for it every single time to go and do that when you are in discomfort? Yeah, it's, <laughs> I mean, it was, it was difficult. I, I think immediately to, to the, to the night shift and rowing you don't really think about this it's, it's stupid when you set out to row the atlantic but you like you, you're actually rowing half the time in pitch black and you you can't see anything and you, you can't see the waves you, you know you're just getting constantly battered in, in the dark um but but to get up for those yeah i'm getting up for those two hour shifts in the middle of the night were, were, were really tough often you'd kind of fall asleep dreaming of of actually rowing and you'd wake up thinking you were you'd just done your two hour shift, and then you'd have to actually get on the oars and and do two hours. But but during the day, saying that you know it was actually nice to get out on the oars. It was better than sometimes being cooked, cooked up in your cabin. Um, you know when you got into the middle of the Atlantic and temperatures soared and got really high, it was going into your cabin was was pretty hellish. It was like it was almost like a sauna. So um, getting on the oars was almost. Uh, better than being cooped up in your cabin um but i think it was to, to get ourselves up for it, it was really just being harsh on ourselves we i think one of the things that we did really well was stick to the four-hour schedule that we all had and we we made sure that we were ready five minutes before that we were you know we were due to come on the oars so uh, no one was rushing um, i mean there was a few times where you know people you know maybe slept in and, and it was a bit more of a rush but we 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 were hard on ourselves and said, look, you need to be ready five minutes before you shift. Uh, you need to have done your stretches and you need to be ready to go. And I think being hard on each other um, meant that we knew we had to be ready. And that led to a, le loss, a lot less uh, friction and, and people getting annoyed with each other for not being on time. Um, so, yeah, just, just being hard on each other, I think, and making sure that we were, we were there and ready to go on time was, was a big part of it. So was there was there like a special switch in your brain that when you got out of the pit and said, right, it's, it's my turn, was there a special switch that you just said, you know, I'm on now, I'm doing it and I'm getting it done? Or does it? did you not have that? Because I know personally, if I'm in discomfort and I don't, you know, if something hurts, it's not necessarily, the th you're not necessarily going to want to do whatever's in front of you. Um, you've got to come up with some way of dealing with that and doing something mentally. I normally have some form of switch where I says, right, I'm just going to get it done. Um, stop whinging, stop moaning and get on with it. Uh, uh, is is that what you had or was it the fact that you had team members around you that put the pressure on to make you do it? Yeah, so I think it's a good question. Um, I, I definitely probably had that switch, but I think it was the fear of letting your team down. I think that was probably the the resounding one we, we we'd done so much for each other and you know you knew that everyone else was putting that 100 percent effort in um and you just didn't want to let them down um so it's as simple as that so i think the fear of letting your team down was probably the the resounding one for me and and probably others as well uh we 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 knew we just couldn't let each other down and as soon as it started to you know if it did start to slip that's when friction started to get to get short and high so I, I yeah i think i think if i'm really being really honest it was it's fear of letting your mates down so you, you needed to be there on time for them okay and is there is there that kind of that deeper purpose that we talked about earlier on that that constantly rings through your your mind as you're doing this as you're stuck on the boat or is that something that's kind of that's been done you've you've raised the money you've supported the charities now it's you know four guys on a boat and we've got to get through this or was there that deeper purpose all the way through which dri drove you to finish yeah there was definitely a deeper purpose we we were very very lucky in having a lot of you know close friends family uh you know supporters of what we were doing and when we made it to the start line there was so many people that had got behind us and we had a one thing that springs to mind was our 250 club 250 club where people would um donate 250 pounds to us uh, to our charities and we had you know in excess of 150 to 200 members of that club and when you know you sit back and think that people that people have donated to to, to the causes but f you know essentially for you to go out and row the atlantic 
there was such a an overwhelming I think responsibility for us to go out there and, and really give it our best shot. And, you know, we all felt the same, you know, completely indebted to everyone who'd supported us along the way. So we knew that we had to go out there and absolutely smash it. Um, and, and we also had a lot of close contact on the boat. I say close contact. We had a lot of contact on the boat. So people were sending us messages every evening. You know, we'd, we'd read it out to, to people on the oars you know, just general notes of, of, of support to say, you know, what you're doing is great. And it, it was really a, a strong reminder of why we're actually doing it, the purpose behind it, and the fact that people were, you know, supporting us. And that really, really helped us along the way. You know, you'd had a hard day on the oars, you were at your wits end, and hearing people with these messages of support who kindly, you know, written them and, and emailed us on the boat um was was just incredible so so that support and and deeper purpose behind that and our charities was was something that really drove us re- really pretty hard across the the crossing yeah that's good and as i said earlier on once again there's a there's another message there to to everybody that training with a purpose um just heightens the importance of whatever you're doing and it increases the I think the stress and the pressure on you to perform and to get the job done. Um, so if you are considering doing an event or if you've got an event coming up, you've really got to understand what the purpose is. What is it that you're doing it for and why? And keep that in your back in the back of your mind at all times because that is really what drives you through this. And in Dickie's case, it was getting up every two hours with um, not letting his mates down on the boat, but also that deeper purpose behind it and the charity and the friends and everybody that backed him to do this that's a huge amount of weight on somebody's shoulders which if you can turn that into a positive dicky which is obviously what you did it, it's ended up kind of driving you on and making you row incredibly fast across the atlantic how do you turn all of that pressure into a positive yeah no you've, you've summed that up really well and i think that was a massive massive you know driving force uh, behind what we did for it for everyone um but but yeah, I, I'm a strong believer in. You know, I've been an active guy a lot of my life, and uh, you know, you try and keep yourself in good shape. Even you know when you start to you know you, you get out of university and start a normal job. Uh, I, I think, like you said, you've really got to set yourself a, a, a goal. I, I find it very hard to train without a a purpose or a goal in mind. Uh, I've done a couple of challenges since the row, and I you know if if I don't have that goal or that you know, that challenge that's you, you're think, thinking about and you can imagine, and if you don't train for it, what's going to happen? I think it, it's it's very hard and it's not really as interesting to, to just train aimlessly. So I think I think for those people out there that are looking to, uh, you know, to, 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 to train hard, I think it's a lot easier if you, if you do set yourself a goal, a big challenge and, and work towards it. And it's certainly a lot more fun because you obviously end up nine times out of 10, hopefully completing and smashing that challenge. And then it takes you on to something bigger and better. So, so yeah, I, I think that's my summed up version. Yeah, it's great. I think it's so important that people have a purpose for whatever they're doing. And, and goals are one thing, but it's also understanding the deeper meaning behind that, that challenge or that, that, that goal that you have. And a lot of people, unfortunately, and I don't say this in a bad way, I think it's great that people want to get fit. I think it's great that people want to lose weight. Um, I think it's incredibly important that everybody leads a healthy lifestyle. But I do find in in the 20 years of being involved in the fitness industry, I do find the people that come to me um, or when I was a personal trainer that came to me and say, I'm here to lose weight. I did find that those people found it a lot more difficult to stick to a goal and stick to to it because there wasn't really a deeper purpose it hadn't explored it enough to understand what that reason was why did they need to lose weight not i just want to lose five stone or or 10 kilos there was something behind that and they didn't go as far they didn't search quite as deep as they needed to to understand what it was so i've always kind of um guided people down the route to find a challenge to find an event to find a purpose to train for but if you've not got a specific purpose or a specific event or challenge just think a little bit deeper about what you're doing and why you're doing it and who you're doing it for if it's just for yourself why you're doing it for yourself not just you're losing five kilos or you're trying to 
shed a couple of stone before you go on a holiday in the summer there's got to be a deeper reason behind it and get stuck into that reason and and become accountable for it as well um dicky that leads us on to kind of a few of the more uh, inner details of being stuck on a boat with three other guys <laughs> and i mean this could become well this isn't meant to be a comedy show actually this is about you know some really infor- informative information and motivation and inspiration but was it was it funny was it like did you just wake up sometimes and go what the hell am i doing with these lads did you have a laugh or, <laughs> or was it serious the whole time no it was it was it was it was a laugh it was definitely a laugh i mean it was it was a whole host of different things um but it was certainly something I look back on is is definitely the it's just just the most incredible experience we saw, you know, wildlife, uh, whales. So that was that was great. Um, but I think I think the the bond that you have with the, you know the, the people that you do something like that with is just you know incredible. We spent obviously hours on end on the oars uh, having conversations about god knows what um and it was you know you had all the time in the world to to talk about whatever you wanted so it was it was quite funny drawing stories out as long as possible um but no just just we had a great time i I think i think the obviously extremely grueling but obviously back to the back to the team side of things we we helped each other through it and we got through it and um we, we never actually thought we had it in us to break a world record it was certainly not something that we were focused on um, but obviously the preparation that we and, and the effort that we put into it meant that we were in a position halfway across the Atlantic where we were saying, guys, we're on for a record here. And, it, it, you know, three quarters of the way through the, the, the race, it, it, it actually came quite stressful because we knew at any point in time anything could have gone wrong on the boat. There was there was boats dropping out the race left, right and center because of the weather, um, because of technical difficulties uh, or technical failures. So we 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 certainly didn't relax during the race we 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 were constantly on even you know when we were a day or two out so we did have a great time but it became very tense when other boats were catching us towards the end of the race some some boats had taken a a more southerly route which meant that they were catching a lot more currents so we we'd taken more of a direct route so it got to a point where we were kind of five six days out from antigua thinking some of these boats could could catch us and and it was some really tense times where you know we got a two hourly four hourly update from from my dad who were giving the coordinates of every boat and there were other boats or the competitors were were encroaching on us uh, every every four hours so so they were they were some really tense times towards the end uh, but then getting over the actual finish line and, and and arriving into antigua was just a feeling that i can't describe it's you know hairs on, on the back of your neck kind of stuff such a, a feeling of elation um just yeah and it makes you thirsty for that feeling even more so um i hope i get that feeling again and doing something uh, but i'm certainly not going to be rowing the atlantic again <laughs> <laughs> that feeling actually is quite a unique feeling and it's one that it's one that i've experienced in events which have you know have challenged me personally sporting events and I I would advise everybody to go out and find that feeling because it is quite unique when you had a you have a purpose behind something and you get that feeling at the end when you've completed it. It is um, it is very special and it becomes addictive. I think uh, mm. Dicky, you've obviously got that you know in your in your personality and in your kind of demeanor that you want to you're searching for something else by the sounds of it because i know you've done some other things since since the atlantic but um just to go back to the the enjoyment factor or or making the best out of pretty tough situations because i i think that's another great message or another great learning for for our listeners about how on earth do you make the best out of a situation which really most people would think would be awful yeah the, the definitely humor comes in into uh, making light of yourself um we we got on really well so there's some some really f- funny times um you find yourself in some pretty funny situations you know there was often times where we're all completely naked on the boat because it was hot and you know any any you know any clothing uh, caused friction so you know, you, you did, there was times where we were looking at ourselves. You know, four guys start start bollock naked on the boat. Uh, one having a number two, uh, and and you know when you do go for a number two on the boat, you, you're you're 
you're dangerously close to the the front you know to your mate on the boat um so so you find yourself in in funny funny situations uh and and obviously just making light of yourself but uh but no it's just just an incredible incredible experience i'm I'm kind of smiling looking back on it so uh so if anybody wants to see evidence of that they go to is it the instagram the four oarsmen on instagram and have a look at some of the um the naked shots yeah, there's there's plenty. I think there's a picture of Stu having a number two, which he, he loves. So, uh, yeah. Brilliant. And the the food, you mentioned briefly earlier on about um, all of the preparation and getting the nutrition right. And you said you went into kind of a high fat diet. Um, was that a big change for all of you? And w- if it was a big change for you, what was it like actually having to do that and, you know, continue to do that for a number of months prior to and obviously during? Yeah, no, definitely one of our little marginal gain thing that we we thought about. Um, uh, it was it was a big change actually, for some more than others. So we had some people on the team who you know enjoyed their carbs. Uh, you know, me, I actually kind of a couple of years before sampled the higher higher fat diet. So I think for me it was <clears throat> less of a less of a, a, a pivot or a change. Um, but, but for others, it was slightly harder. Um, and again, it was keeping ourselves honest. We, we committed to getting into a ketogenic diet, probably three or four, maybe even five months before the actual race. And I remember going to the supermarket for the first time with everyone and just kind of going down the aisles and and working out what we could and couldn't eat. It was, it was hilarious. Um, but no sweets, no alcohol or very little alcohol. Um, we had some, you know, releases leading up to the race, a couple of, a couple of nights out that were, were needed, but, uh, but very little alcohol, obviously no sh- sugar or carbs, about 15 to 20 grams of carbs a day. So really just vegetables. Um, but we all stuck to it and we all committed to it. We all knew there was a, a greater purpose for, for kind of getting into the ketogenic diet and becoming fat adapted. And I think it really did pay off. Um, we, we obviously pulled together a pretty detailed nutrition plan within our uh, food sachets, <clears throat> just like the, imagine a camping meal that we had, the kind of fancy camping camping meals. Uh, we, we put MCT oil, which is essentially liquid fat. We supplemented all our meals with liquid fat. We were eating pork scratchings. We were eating coconut shavings, nuts. Um, so it, it was definitely a big commitment, but we, we knew there was a, a greater purpose for it and it, it paid off it meant that we it's it's a big commitment but it's also a big sacrifice isn't it and, and i think preparation for something like this is is in general a big sacrifice you're putting potentially a lot of your life on hold um and for anybody considering you know doing anything serious whether it's a marathon um an iron man uh, the marathon de sable or even possibly rowing the ocean you kind of got to put the rest of your life on hold i think by the sounds of it to to actually you know really get anything out of this and to to complete it with in any sort of level of success would you say that's fair yeah i, I would I, I would actually it's it's really tough i mean we were lucky george myself and pete were we were all single at the time and we had you know, we didn't have any girlfriends or wives to, to, to think about. Whereas Stu did a very good job of juggling what we were doing as well as, you know, his girlfriend at the time. And it was a nice little story. Actually, they ended up getting married when we landed in Antigua. So it was, it was a, a great little story, but um, yeah, I think you've really got, you put, put your all into it. You can't really go into it half-hearted. And I can imagine for, for those people with, with wives and girlfriends who go through a serious event, it, it's, it's going to be tough on the other half. But you, you've really got to knuckle down and, and put your all into it. And do you think that's uh, something that, as a, as advice or guidance, do you think that actually that's something that people need to be aware of? And and two, you know, how do you get around that? Um, if you've got a family and you're committed to doing something pretty ser- serious, and you re- you're willing to make those sacrifices. Um, for the for the benefit of the event or the the success and the result of the event how do you get around that with the with your loved ones and you know is there any way that you would approach that yourself yeah again i, I was really lucky um i've i've been in a fortunate i was in a fortunate position to be fairly self selfish um and 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 not really have you know living in texas obviously i've got my mates but 
I, at the time I didn't have a girlfriend and I was, I was able to just completely get obsessed with it. Um, completely obsessed with it. Uh, it's all I'd think about. I'd train about it. I'd do, you know, if I wasn't working, I'd be working on, on doing the row. So yeah, we, I was very lucky in that sense that I could, I could do that and I didn't have to juggle. So I, I wouldn't really be in a fit state to, to advise on how you'd be able to juggle if you did have a, a close one or a loved one. But, um, so yeah, I, that's, that's all I can really say to that. I can imagine it would be, I, I know for Stu, it was, it was, it was tough and we were very accepting of that. We, we really didn't want to put too much pressure on his and Laura's relationship. Um, so, so there was a few times that we had to make sure we gave them that space to, to be able to do that. Great. And just to kind of, we're coming to the end of the show, but I'd really like to know, you know, you obviously had this incredible experience, not only the actual event, but leading up to it and the preparation. And you must have, surely must have gained a huge amount of um, experiences and knowledge and takeaways from this whole event and whole preparation process, which have they impacted you now? Has it changed the way you operate as an individual? Has it changed the way you work? Um, you know, what, what effect did it have in your life in general? Yeah, lo- lo- lots of little things. Um, I'm trying to think of the, the kind of the, the main ones. I, th- I think it's definitely, it, it left a huge, huge hole in, in, in my life. So I've kind of filled it with making sure I keep up, keep up that adventure and, and making sure that I set, you know, goals, physical goals uh, each year. Um, it, it's taught me a lot about teamwork. Um, I think I, I made a point earlier around, you know, being selfless and, and, and having that third eye open for your team members. So a lot of, a lot of, a lot of good teamwork skills that I've, I've taken from it. Um, but I think, I think the main thing is, you know, anything is possible. We never thought we could go out and even row the Atlantic. We, we thought we'd be lucky to row the Atlantic, but if you really, if you really want something, uh, you really, really, really want it. You put your mind to it. It's, it's, it's incredible what you can actually achieve. So, um, that, that's my, my biggest message I think is, is just understand what you want, uh, life's short. So if you've got any ambitions that you want to do, get, you know, you need to get, get them planned, uh, and then, and then get excited about it, you know, understand how you're going to achieve that goal, break it down. Uh, and yeah, it was such an amazing thing to do. So I, I highly recommend, uh, you know, anyone listening to, to, to kind of go out and, and do what they really want to do it's it was it was incredible i think that's a great way to end you couldn't have summed it up better dicky just to kind of reiterate those, those final points um that it really is such a unique opportunity when you decide to take on board a challenge like this or any other challenge um to really make the most of it and to get everything possible out of it because it's something that you'll probably, I'm sure you will remember for the rest of your life and for those others that are considering doing some form of challenge like this. But what you said about the um, putting your mind to it and anything is possible, because you hear that quite a lot, but I mean, is that really true? (laughs) Is that all it takes, putting your mind to it? Or is is there something else that, you know, the four of you had which allowed you to do this or could anybody do it? Yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, it, it's we 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 had some things on our side. I mean, we're all six foot five guys. Um, we'd all played sport most of our life, um, so so we did have a few things working in our favour. Um, but but I, I still think you know personally, I think if if you've got something out there that you don't think you can achieve, I I, I still think it's generally possible if you if you if you if you if you're passionate about it. Um, and, and you really set your mind and like I say, break, break it down. Uh, it may take you three or four years to do it. It may not be something that you can do straight away, but if it's something that you really want to do, I, I do truly believe that if you stick your mind to it and, and put your all into it, you, you can achieve it. I think that's exactly right. And, you know, whether it's the crossing the Atlantic, which so many different people do from so many walks of life. So um, it's not just young 30 year old blokes that do this. There's, um, people in their 70s and there's people um, from all different areas of the world taking part in this race and and so that does demonstrate that putting your mind to it then it really is possible to achieve some incredible things and on that, on that note Dickie I'd just like to thank you for um, your time with us on the show it's been great to have you on uh, really interesting great to kind of hear some of the stories and what you went through to to achieve this 
um, from four average blokes on a mission to being four world record holders um, in something which uh, not many people have managed to achieve. It's a pretty impressive uh, feat and one that um, I hope the that will remain with you for many years and will continue to inspire you to do many other challenges. And uh, maybe the next time you come up with something crazy, you can come back on the pod and tell us what it, tell us all about it. No, thanks for having us. I'd, I'd love to come back. So I'll try and think of something crazy and, uh, and, and nail it. <laughs> awesome. All right. Thanks very much. Cheers, Tommy. Thank you for listening to the Be Military Fit podcast. We hope you enjoyed the show. If you did and you'd like to learn more about us, please visit bemilitaryfit.com or visit our YouTube channel for our latest workouts.